Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Kimberly Snyder is a spiritual guide, meditation teacher, nutritionist, and holistic wellness expert. She is a prolific New York Times bestselling author and has been featured in dozens of national media outlets, including GMA, The Today Show, and The Wall Street Journal. And she's back on the show today to chat about her new must-read book titled, You Are More Than You Think You Are, Practical Enlightenment for Everyday Life. Kimberly, welcome. Oh, it's so great to be back with you, Jason. Nice to see you. Great to see you too. Great to see you too. Colleen and I miss California. We will be back and and we will definitely uh, see you and your lovely family when we are back in March. Oh, yes. I can't wait. I'm curious. Look, you are a prolific best-selling author. And a question I tend to ask prolific best-selling authors is you don't really need to write another book, but you wrote another book and you went in an interesting direction with this. You are, and the title is, and I love the title, you are more than you think you are practical enlightenment for everyday life, which I'm, I think we need this right now, but I want to get your perspective. You know, why this book? So there's two parts of this question, and thank you so much, Jason, for, for asking this. The first part is I didn't really choose. I didn't really have a choice, if I'm completely honest. I was 34 weeks pregnant with my second son, with Moses, and it just the whole idea of this book just kind of felt like it came down in a flash. And it was at a time when I was looking to actually slow down and take more things off my plate, but it was this it was so clear, just felt like here's the idea. And so I didn't really know, you know, what I should do. So I actually reached out to um, my co-author two books ago, Deepak Chopra. And I said, Deepak, I have this idea. And he's like, what is it? And I told him and he said, oh, this book belongs with Hay House, which was a different publisher than the previous two I had worked with. So next thing I know, he puts me on an email with Reed Tracy, the president, and Reed's like, well, what's your book about, Kimberly? And so I told him. And a week later, I was presenting the book over Zoom, and I wrote a sample chapter. And I think it was three days before Moses was born that I actually signed the deal. And then I waited 60 days to write, start writing. But it was, you know, when you when we get into the subject of the book, it's You know, I just feel so passionately that these teachings are needed more than ever. Um, You know, I think we get, we all get excited about new stuff and trends and, you know, studies that are coming out, but there's so much value in the old. And this is about, this is taking ancient teachings, so really, really old stuff and bringing it to the forefront with supportive science and stories to show how useful these studies are for modern day. And I guess the precursor to that too, Jason, is a few years ago when I went through my really rock bottom that I describe in the book, when I lost my mom suddenly and then became a single mom, there was a period for about five months afterwards where a monk from the Self-Realization Fellowship, which is Yogananda's meditation organization, told me to treat my home like an ashram. So this was pre-COVID for sure. And I took care of my child and I did work, but it was in those five months that I went really deep. I went back into reading the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and Rumi and the New Testament of the Bible and all these texts. And I emerged just with a lot more trust of myself, trust of life, clarity. And then I started, you know, 
just rebuilding my life from there. But I think that the genesis of this book has been building in me for a really long time. And that period really solidified it. And then one one last thing, Jason, I didn't mean this to be so long, but it's such a rich question. Where did this book come from? The first time I wrote a book, which was 10 years ago to this year, I had just come back from backpacking. I was on the road for three years. And one of the most impactful places for me was India. And so I was learning about yoga and meditation. I was, you know, trying to create some sense of um, comfortability in myself, I guess. You know, back then I didn't realize I was a seeker, but I was really bloated and I had acne and I was obsessed with grades and achievements. So I was just backpacking to try to, you know, figure out my life. And when I went to India and really learned about this stuff for the first time and Paramahansa Yogananda, who was the one that brought yoga to the West, I was just starting to create these patterns and start to, I was just starting to meditate and I came back to New York City and I didn't have any money, but I was applying these teachings and starting to rebuild my life. And then there was this flow where the I started this free blog and it started growing. And then my first celebrity found me. I wasn't trying to be a celebrity, you know, work with celebrities. I still don't own a TV to this day, but I got pulled into that world and then met other actors and booked, you know, the television shows started coming. And then my first book deal the reason I tell you this on this long ramble was my first book deal was with Harper Collins, my editor, Sarah, and I actually had an idea for a book called Catching the Fire, which was a travel memoir with a lot of these teachings, Jason, that are in this book now. And she looked at my site and she's like, well, the food and the recipe stuff seem to be taking off a lot. So why don't we do a food book first and then this book second? So here we are. That first food book was the Beauty Detox Solution that you know, just exploded, went on to sell like a million copies. And then the second book, they wanted to do a food book. Then it started coming back in. But anyways, here we are six books later and 10 years later. And this is the book that, you know, I feel the most passionate about. This is the one, this is my full playbook, Jason. This is the one that I know will help people the most. Well, I, I love that that work you did 10 years ago did not go to waste. <laughs> also, oh, Yes, exactly. Wasn't the right timing, clearly. There's a lot to unpack there. And, and something you said, I think resonates with so many people is this search, this quest for, you know, developing real trust, real yes. knowing. And it's something you talk about in the book. And I, I think we're all looking for that in some sense, whether it's, you know, true purpose, trusting our intuition, knowing when to let go and trust the process or trust, trust God or trust the universe, whatever you believe in. And I think it's an, I, an idea or a concept, which I think everyone finds very appealing, including myself, but it's so hard to do when we live in an age where, you know, as you mentioned, we both love science. We both love data. We both like having metrics and real-time feedback. And it's hard to do, especially when you're driven. Yes. So I'll pause there. How do we get better <laughs> yes. at developing, you know, real trust, real knowing? So one of the central or the central concept of the book is really about accessing the power of the true self. And I didn't really know this. I didn't know this term at all when I was starting out. I didn't know that there was something called the false self and the true self. But this is what yogic science teaches us, again, from thousands and thousands of years ago. The Vedas are actually the oldest texts on the planet. And the what yoga teaches us is this outer shell so much of what we put our identity to into and our self-worth is the false self 
false self known as the ego. It's what Wayne Dyer calls the less than 2% of who we really are. And so this is the part of us that likes to overanalyze, overthink, you know, get obsessed with numbers. I can say from personal experience, everything from how much I weighed to, you know, particularly grades where I was on the scale of, you know, my class. I always wanted to be number one. <laughs> All sorts of numbers and, and figures can start to create that overanalyzing part of us where we question everything and then, you know, this doubt starts to come because it's hard to get all the concrete answers if we're just looking out here because the world is shifting and changing. So what yoga teaches us is that there's a different way. We, the solution to the problem is not found where the problem is. So it's not that the data is bad. It's not that we don't want to, you know, look good and live in the world because we're having this embodied experience. But what it is, is we don't want to put our full faith in just what our physical eyes can see. We don't want to put our full identity in this shell of what we look like and what we're doing. The other part of us is called the true self. And you mentioned intuition, Jason, which is a chapter in the book and something we can really hone and we can, something we can really learn to discern the difference between the over doubting ego and the truth, the, the you know, the intuition that guides us. And so the true self is this formless part of us. It's the voice of the heart. It's the voice of the intuition. It's this stable, courageous part of us. We can say it's spirit individualized. We can say, you know, the terminology is the universe, you know, this drop of consciousness. Quantum physics would say it's this gravitational field that runs through us and around us. But there is this unique part of us that is eternal and goes on. It's the part of us that watches our thoughts. So we are more than, you know, just this thinking mind. I love Eckhart Tolle and I would read, you know, some of his stuff, but I think, oh yeah, what's he talking about here? You know, going past thoughts. So it was really important for me that this book is very practical. That's why the um, subtitle is Practical Enlightenment for Everyday Life, because I think the way that we start to trust more is we have to have the experience of dropping into this deeper, more expansive place. You know, as much as we love science, Jason, we know that it's, you know, the mind is limited. So we're taking, you know, these, these limited tools that are created by this, you know, the egoic part of us, and then we're measuring things. And so by virtue, it's not going to be able to measure everything. And so what this path is about is giving you this experience of deeper knowing, which is felt inside of you. So it's not just relying on facts and figures, but it's saying that when we connect in, there's this sense of expansiveness. There's this place that you can go to when things out here are really choppy and scary and unreliable and unpredictable, which is pretty much everything, right? R relying on humans to validate us or to agree with us or to see us or, you know, whatever it is out here versus going into this place of the true self. So what I found is balancing my time out here and practically speaking and balancing the time inside. So what that means is in the morning, make my hot water with lemon. I'll take my probiotics. I'll do all the steps of doing to take care of my body and to set myself up, self, set myself up for the day. But at the same time, I prioritize sitting in meditation right? So the meditations I put out, the practical enlightenment meditations are only seven minutes, eight minutes to get someone started. So it's these small steps that we start to take. But real uh, effective meditation isn't just relaxing the senses because then we're still in this, you know, uh, mode of um, living life through the senses, the uh, peripheral nervous system just out here versus in yoga, this 
uh, limb, this Sanskrit term, pratyahara, withdrawing all the energy into our center. And so when we do that, when we sit to meditate in the morning, for instance, our breath slows down, our hormones regulate, we are in balance, we're more clear, there's more clarity. It's a great time after meditation. This is where I get my best ideas, Jason. It's just in my notebook or my journal, I ask a question or I bring up a work project or whatever it is. And so there's this practical nature of being able to tune in when we don't have all the fear and all the thoughts running through us. So, you know, it's kind of a long uh, roundabout answer to your question, but the way that we've developed more trust is through this experience of spending time in stillness, meditation, introspection, really following what these great teachers taught us from thousands of years ago. And the word Rishi, I'll just wrap that up. The word Rishi means seer. So it's seeing more than the physical eyes, seeing, you know, the perception, the third eye, or just this deeper knowing, living more from our intuition versus just relying on hard facts. I love it. And building off of intuition in the book, you also reference a number of fascinating studies. So there's real yes. science, real studies. And there was one specifically that stood out that it came out of an institution in Berlin. Could you share a little bit about that one specifically? Well, there's a couple, the, the Max Planck Institute. Yes, yes, yes. So what's great about some of this research, it shows that, you know, wow, like <laughs> science is now starting to really show the validity of these practices around meditation and stillness for the discerning mind. I think there's a lot of people out there, Jason, you being one of them and me to an extent where we want that, that science to back up what we are saying and what we're talking about. So th there's actually a couple studies from that institution, but one, one aspect of it that that I thought was really interesting because we were just talking about the third eye and where we focus. So there's different mudras, there's different positions of our hands and our fingers. And the Shaham Mudra, I think I'm saying this right, is when we lift our attention when we're meditating up to our third eye. And this actually helps to activate this part of our brain, the little brain stem, this notch right here, the medulla oblongata, and this ganglion of nerves. So there's actually science to focusing on our third eye that when we're focusing here, we're actually activating different parts of our brain and those that are associated with more peak creativity and calmness and being less, you know, drawn into the emotion, emotions and the trauma of life, the matter. Again, our ego is always wanting us to get so involved here versus being able to really stay centered and not speak as much, not judge as much, not comment as much. Because when we do that, we're just constantly putting our attention in all these you know, little rivulets, all the ways that we drain our focus. So um, I'm not sure if that was the study you were referring to, Jason, but there is science to these techniques, which are really specific, how we focus on the little gaps between the inhales and exhales, for instance, or the whole, in the whole chapter, there's a practice called the sun moon chapter about looking at our qualities and our behaviors and being able to drop shame, which there's you know, so much research now about the heaviness of shame and going underneath to the true self, the beingness of us is more than our behaviors. <laughs> Because let's face it, we're stumbling along. There's this part of us that's becoming the human part of us. And at the same time, the, sta the stability of the true self is there. So our behaviors eventually will start to line up more, you know, the, the truth of the true self. But as we're going along the way, we're going to stumble and we're going to mess up. So we don't want to attach our self-worth even to our behaviors because then we'll start to feel worse and worse about ourselves. And then we're not able to really show up in the fullness of this moment. You know, when you mentioned showing up and true self and shame, I can't help but think of, I, I thought this was 
was fascinating in the book, you talk about false confidence. Oh, yes. And true confidence. So can you talk about the difference between false confidence and true confidence? So I think one of the biggest fears, the most prevalent fear in the way, in all the ways it shows up is feeling not enough or not good enough. And so false confidence is when we try to fill that deep fear, that disconnection, um, which really comes from over-identifying with the ego, but we fill it with all the things that we can see. So shining up the outside, I'm confident because I've got really great hair, my skin looks great. Or again, my, you know, my main go-to was I've got the best grades or achievements or like I'm doing more of this. Look at all that I have to show. And the issue with that, again, is this external world. Everything out here is always shifting and changing. So if we're trying to attach our confidence to something that isn't going to be permanent and sustainable, our confidence is going to go up and down. Oh, you know, one day, you know, when I worked with all these actors, it was, oh, one day my movie is like number one next one, it bombed, right? So if my sense of confidence comes from this external world, I'm never going to feel good and I'm always going to struggle. And you know what, like, you know, Jason, this is when life kind of sucks and it feels arduous because we're always like churning and pushing and trying to get. Uh, so real confidence, we're like, well, how are we supposed to feel confident? What we're taught is you peel back the, the layers, right? It's like the very, very root of why am I supposed to be confident? And it goes to this statement. I love this, you know, summarizing with this one statement in the book where I say, Jason, you know, what did Moses, you know, what, what was, when Moses went to the Almighty, what was the response when he said, you know, what is this? Who are you? And it was one simple statement. I am that I am. So true confidence comes from when we really recognize and accept I am that I am. I am an, I'm alive. I'm breathing. I'm this unique creation, this drop of consciousness, you know, life that is working, struggling, making its way to exist and to be here. So the fact that I'm here, the fact that I'm alive, I am confident because I am me and no one else is me. So there's many layers to unpacking that and to getting to that core. It's a practice that we can all work on aligning to but it's possible because I look at me, Jason, I look at how much I was obsessed again with achievement and would feel really bad if I got an A minus or something was off into where I am today. You know, I've been meditating now for well over a decade and doing these practices. And it doesn't mean, you know, my life is, is perfect and none of this stuff bothers me, but I would say it's, you know, way better over 90, 90% better and I know that's possible for everyone. When we connect into this energy, it just, there's less of this, you know, looking around because it's all ego. There's just this stable, this, I keep using this word because it just feels really stable, this stable resource inside of us that's usually dormant, but it's the part of us that celebrates, I'm here, I'm just here. And it's not predicated on you know, doing more stuff. And this is also reminds me of the love chapter, Jason, because I think in a similar vein to attaching confidence to all the stuff out here, when it comes to love, most of us feel like we have to get love, right? So we, 
show up and we shine ourselves up and we look as pretty as possible or as handsome as possible or whatever it is. And then we're trying to get love in the form of someone to date me or someone to pay attention to me or to agree with me or to validate me or to follow me on social media or whatever it is. We're always trying to get it out here. And what that does is actually puts out this desperate energy and almost this lack energy. And I think that's why so many people struggle today with dating apps and trying to find um, soulmates. I mean, I certainly have a lot of friends that are in that struggle. And the difference is similarly to confidence when it comes from inside of us, not something we're getting, but just something that we are connecting to inside of us. It's a very different, it's a very powerful energy. And so with love, it's understanding that the love is never comes from someone else. It's just that other people may light up the love that's inside of us. But we be, we are the source of love. Love is actually activated through us living love as a verb. So instead of trying to get it as a thing that's elusive and, you know, we're always in lack of, we live love. We activate it. We are loving. We tell people that we love them. We reach out in love. We're, we spread kindness. We're more compassionate and gratitude and grateful. And then love just starts to pour out of us and that attracts people to us. And then there's none of this arduous trying to get stuff from people around us. So you just mentioned lacking and I, I think there are, there are two buckets that people operate from. Maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I'll do it anyway. You, one can operate from a scarcity mindset or an abundance mindset. Yes. And so. Again, I think conceptually everyone's like, yeah, abundance, that, that's me. I want that. But, but again, in the day-to-day -day of our everyday of our lives, which are hectic, it's often difficult for people to, to take a step back and, and really look at how they're operating. And so at the highest level, how, how can we create and operate from an abundance mindset? And, and what are the pitfalls of that mindset? Because we're human. <laughs> We're human. And so again, this, you know, this word enlightenment, which is in the subtitle is it's about getting on the path, right? So it's not, we're going to be enlightened like Buddha and Jesus and Yogananda and Krishna who are like there and completely embodied. It's about getting on a path. And like I said, there's this human part of us and then there's this divine part of us that's already complete. So we're going to drop in and out, but even just by getting on the path and having practices for bringing us back makes all the difference in our life, Jason, right? It's like if the Titanic was over one degree, history would have been changed. So what I'm talking about here is having practices, you know, seven, 10 minutes in the morning. There's a 90 second practice when we are, you know, in comparison mode or not feeling good enough to just help us recenter in the day. So a lot of these techniques and teachings I'm, I talk about in the book that have been passed on, it's not like we have to spend all day doing them. It's not more work. It's a shift of focus. And that includes abundance. So really what is abundance? And people fragment things, I think, with wellness too. People like, well, you know, is wellness just eating really well? Or is it being really fit? Or is it, you know, the stats on my Fitbit or whatever it is versus seeing it as this, this way to support our wholeness? It's you know, we are whole beings. So wellness is about, you know, supporting the power of that. And same thing with abundance. It's not just about one aspect like financial prosperity or, you know, material things. Abundance is about fullness. So it's about how we show up in fullness in this moment. It's a moment to moment checking in. Am I, where am I on the scale of abundance in this moment? Am I in ego? 
Am I in lack-based thinking or am I in expansion of, you know, allness and infinity? This is the true self. And so when we are in this fullness, what happens is it becomes this, um, this frequency, this repeated vibration. And I just had this neuroscientist on my podcast, Jason, and I was, t you know, we we're talking about this and she was like, oh, and she was talking about some of the studies she had done and measuring some of the, you know, the fields and mind and all the different cells of the body. So there is science to this. It's not woo woo, like, oh, you know, frequencies, but there really is, you know, even if you just think about walking into a room and how you can sense when someone you're drawn to someone there's this magnetic quality to them it may you know you may pin it down to them being more positive or more cheerful whatever it is but we are drawing in and we are repelling all the time by our own energy so abundance is instead of focusing on outside of ourselves which is what the ego does we may say that we want to be in abundance we may say that we want to live this loving life but just speaking it versus living it as an energy in you is very different we may say these things but we're obsessed with what's coming in or what's not coming in oh i still can't find love this sucks there's no good guys left in new york city or whatever we say or oh my gosh it's so competitive out there the job market or this you know this um whatever this my product's never going to do well it's too competitive we're always focused out here which is lack-based thinking it's seeing what is not there abundance is embracing the fullness of this potential moment. So it's, you know, me looking at you right now, Jason, and saying, wow, we're just here. We're two humans showing up and expressing. And this is such a full potent moment. Like I don't, nothing's lacking here. I don't need anything else. I don't want to be anywhere else. So it's this just absolute fullness, which starts to create prosperity from not focusing on out here, but what are we bringing to this moment? So the more we stay in this fullness, and again, we use practices, the Heart Math Institute, which has been doing research now for over 25 years, talks about self-generating. So if we're feeling lack, it can be as simple as in that moment, taking a pause, saying, oh my gosh, I'm identifying with my ego again. Call in this fullness, breathe into your heart, just feel, oh, I'm so grateful. Think of 10 things you're grateful for, or five things. Just feel more full versus, you know, this lack. And notice over time how, how that starts to shift your life. It's this moment-to-moment -moment awareness though, Jason. So it's not like, oh, I do this once a month, but checking in, you know, as often as you can and even maybe putting a sign on your desk. You know, where am I on the scale of abundance right now? Especially if you're trying to call in a new house or new love. And I talk about that example, Jason, how we, you know, created, called in this house here pretty easily, which is a feat considering the LA real estate market. But these practices, again, are really practical and they do work. Well, there's so much to unpack there. And you mentioned being grateful. And for me, abundance mindset in, in the day to day does really come down to, to, to gratitude and to being yes. grateful. And, you know, when the moment you catch yourself like, oh man, I wish this were better or that were better. You know what? I, I'm really grateful for what we're doing right now and what we have right now. Exactly. And that practice, that's like the easy catch. The moment you see something on social media and like, oh man, they're on vacation. I want to go there. You know, what am I doing home? Well, actually our home is amazing. Grateful yes. for my home. Yes. And it's, you know, sometimes we don't know. It's not easy to answer these questions from the mind because the mind, of course, is conditioned, often speaks from the wounded ego. So one place that we can go to for clarity is the body because the body doesn't have the same reactions and triggers. It's, in, you know, 
living from this wounded place. So when we think about the true self, when we think about abundance, the true self encapsulates all these qualities that we want, right? Bliss and peace and confidence. The, this word I keep using is expansion. There's this feeling of expansion, like unconditional love. Like you just spread love. You start to see oneness. We start to see connection between us and others. It is expansive. And the ego likes to think small, compares. It feels that lack-based energy. It's always like picking at things, making us feel like we're not enough. So that feeling is constriction, literally constriction and smallness and isolation. So if you're, if you say to yourself, well, am I in lack right now or am I in true self? Am I in abundance? And then you're like, I don't really know. Tune into your body. Just let go of the thoughts and feel in your tummy, in your belly, in your, in your heart, in your chest. Do I feel expansive and open and loose in my body or do I feel tight? And if you are feeling tight and constricted, chances are that is reflecting the state of your mind. So you are in a lack-based pattern. And so that is when we want to recenter. That awareness is so profound and so important. And you can thank your body for that wisdom. And then we we take a break, we pause, we take a breath, you know, we take some deep breaths, we go around, we take a walk, we just like break that pattern, um, whatever that means, maybe shifting the environment, getting into the body, reframe, call in gratitude, like you said, Jason. And then we become the shepherds of our own energy. And then we start to guide ourselves into more of that abundance through more awareness. So I'm going to take expansion into a Marie Kondo direction. And so, you know, <laughs> you know, Marie Kondo, you know, so, so much of the, you know, her magic, the, ma the life-changing magic of tidying up is about, you know, physically clearing the, the clutter in our homes. And I'm curious from your perspective in operating from a place of abundance in, in really valuing you know, expansion in, in one's life. Do you think you have to really work hard to clear up the physical and metaphysical clutter, if you will, whether it's relationships, people, and then like the physical things, like in order to be expansive, to make room for that expansion, do you kind of have to discard of all that crap? So I think that everything is connected to everything else. So I think that is a natural byproduct of getting lighter inside and feeling just more autonomous and more connected to yourself and realizing you need less and less from the outside world. You need less validation. You need less people to agree with you. You need you don't need people to affirm your feelings because you you show up for yourself. So I think a natural byproduct of that as you live life, and this has happened for me, is yeah, I don't need as much stuff. I love giving things away. I just like having space and simplicity. But again, I think it doesn't have to be like, oh, I have to change everything at once. I think that's a natural extension. But I do think an important part of this work, and it's something that I talk about in a couple chapters, Jason, is um, processing and metabolizing our emotions. And what I mean by that is we tend to push down a lot of things that don't feel comfortable to us. And so that could be you know, in the form of drinking wine every night after you get home from work or binge watching Netflix every night or YouTube or constantly scrolling Instagram when you even have like a second of free time. What that does is there's parts of us that we don't see. You know, it's when Carl Jung talks about the shadows. There's, you know, patterns and things that make us feel really reactive, but we don't want to look at them. So we just kind of push it down and push it down. But there is great value and there is science to this as well. And some of the work of Dr. David Hawkins um, has talked about this. And then 
also, you know, on a physical level in our bodies, when we actually feel our feelings, it means that we're able to digest them similarly to food. And this is something I didn't get for many years. I would just kind of, you know, pretend something didn't bother me or I wouldn't address it. But what happens is it does actually, it's not processed. So, and we, you know, we just sort of create ways of coping around it, but we push down this emotion and it can lead to bloating. It can lead to inflammation. It can lead, and there are studies that back this up in the book as well. It just becomes this part of us that we don't really know how to properly deal with. So part of this work is journaling and introspecting and understanding, you know, why does something bother me so much? And then we actually clear up that clutter. So in practical terms, I'll use myself as an example. I used to notice, I, I noticed when I started doing this, oh, it really bothers me when people interrupt me. It really bothers me when, you know, after I give this long explanation, let's say, you know, why I don't think you should, you know, people should eat a lot of dairy. And I'd have my like 20 studies and I'd say this, they didn't agree at the end, right? Okay, like, okay, it's normal. Like, we want to be polite. We don't want to interrupt everybody. But why does it would like actually feel like a dagger? You know, Chase, it would just bother me and it would like affect my mood for a long time. So I started doing this work, you know, some of the shadow work that I talk about in these practices, really looking into the shadows and breathing through it and being there for yourself, for realizing that in order to reach enlightenment or to be on the path, which is really about freedom, it means we have to understand ourselves, the light and the dark. It's not good and bad. It's just, you know, dark is an absence of light. It's parts of us that we don't understand that haven't been nourished. So I started to look at this, you know, why do I care so much when people interrupt me or they don't agree? And what I found over time, I had this realization, oh, it's hitting on this old wound of feeling like I don't, I'm not worthy of being seen or heard, you know, which comes from my own childhood wounds. And underneath that, oh, if I'm not worthy of being seen and being heard, you know, maybe I'm not lovable. So when these things would happen in my adult life, it was like triggering this deep, unprocessed emotion, this part of me that I'd never really looked at. And so it was actually holding me back and creating drama, you know, year in and year out. And so when I realized it and I was able to see it for the first time and breathe through it, then I realized, oh, I can actually love myself. That's where I talked about finding that trust. I can be here for myself. I don't have to try to get on, get it or rely on other people giving it to me and like dancing around and trying to get it and convincing people. It was just this incredible uh, release, Jason, this incredible claiming of freedom, of understanding this wound and then seeing, oh, I give myself this love. And so, you know, it, it was really profound. And it was from this space when I did meet my husband at a random dinner party. I just felt like you know, I was at that point, I was walking around the world with this wholeness that I never had. And I wasn't seeking, I wasn't looking around. And so when we met, it was just this natural, oh, hey, I see you and you see me. And it was none of this, you know, relationship drama that I had experienced in the past, again, from displacing my needs onto others or projecting that. So there is so much power when we start to go into these parts of us. The whole chapter really deals in this a lot. And so again, this autonomy this less needing so much from the outside allows us to really fulfill our purpose because now our energy is directed towards right action and efforts that move us forward instead of the ego <laughs> trying to get everything.
So you mentioned meeting your husband, John, who's amazing. And, and I've yes, also you know asked, each other he, now. Yes. And he's magnetic and you're magnetic. And so I think we all want to be more magnetic. I think most people probably safe to say that's true. So how can we all become more magnetic? You know, be that person who walks into a room that, that brings that good energy or shows up to a Zoom with good energy. <laughs> how, how can we become a little bit more magnetic? Well, I think it's okay. So when you think about something that's magnetic, let's say there is a, a waterfall, right? You know, you know, I spend a lot of time in Hawaii. So this beautiful waterfall that is, you know, you just want to look at it. It's beautiful. It's radiant. And there's a quality to it. There's a dynamic quality to it, right? The, the water is moving. And so there's this flow. So compare that to, let's say, like the heaviness, the stuckness of like a pond with a bunch of algae on it. If we want to be magnetic, we want to have that dynamic, energetic flow coming through us. So what does that mean? It means that we are not holding on to all this baggage. We forgive. We let go. We move on from triggers. We live in this place where, again, it goes back to being in touch with this essence, this part of us that is infinitely creative and infinitely loving. So we were spending time connecting to our center in meditation and stillness. And so it means we're not in lack. We're not always looking out and comparing. And like again, in this egoic mentality, when someone can show up, two people can show up with the same skills, right? Jason, they can have both equally amazing resumes, let's say, and they've achieved all these things. But one person is stuck in the overthinking ego. And so they're saying hi to you but they're not really magnetic because they're thinking about what they have to say and how they're going to look, or maybe they're judging you and you can actually feel that. They're saying, oh, wonder, you know, what Jason ate for breakfast this morning is looking kind of tired or, you know, what did he do yesterday? Whatever it is, the, the mind is always going. And so we're pulled away from the, this epicenter of magic of this, you know, this energy that's just showing up in full presence, not analyzing, but just saying, hey, here I am and here you are, not good or bad. We're just being here together. And so the more we hone in on that, again, through these effective meditations and keep coming back to center with these practices, by nature, we become more magnetic. We are in that fullness, that expansiveness. It's something that can be felt by all others. The opposite is, you know, again, overanalyzing the self-doubt, the smallness, the overthinking, which means, again, by definition, we are in the, the ego. So we're going to be small. We're not going to attract as much. And we're certainly not going to be that, oh my gosh, I want to know what this person is working on and what are they about? Because it's just feels stagnant and stuck. It's like that pond. In a sense, it's almost walking into a situation or a real room or, you know, metaphorical room with the intention of letting go of, you know, pushing aside the agenda or tabling it, being open, being aware, you know, it, it still means you can have an agenda and still have to prepare or, or like you're showing up to something show up, but having that flexibility to, for lack of a better word, you do go with the flow, if you will. Exactly. So this word control, Jason, I think that's one of the biggest issues today is everybody's trying to control everything. And that's why COVID, you know, was such a, whoa, like such a shock because it was, oh, we you know we have our routines and our rhythms and this is how our day goes. 
But then it's, you know, we place so much outside of ourselves. We place our sense of safety and security in this outside world. And so we're trying to manipulate, we're always trying to control things. And again, the solution to the problem of trying to feel more safe or trying to create the life we want isn't where the problem is. So as much as we try to control, there's always going to be so much beyond our control and so many factors and everything's shifting. So in contrast, when we go in and we connect to this energy that's inside of us and all these yogic limbs really spell this out, the pratyahara, the dhyana, the dhyana, the learning to concentrate and work with our energy, it means that we have this, it all ties together, we have this confidence that we can meet any moment. So we just show up and I'm not trying to control everything, you know, it's, I didn't know what our, how our conversation was going to go. I'm just here, really present. And we, to use your term, Jason, we just let go. We are here. We're in life. The ego keeps things really small by saying, oh, that's safe. That's not safe. That's black. That's white. This is good. This is bad. And the labels, and it actually really limits our potential and also limits our ability to really connect with other humans. We all know about IQ versus EQ. And the more that we're able to really synergize and harmonize in the world, this, of course, practically furthers along our businesses and our projects in, in profound ways. So it is this, um, this, you know, this, this energy, this connection that we create from not just being out here all the time in the external world, but balancing that again with these inner practices that when you do show up in the world, whoa. I think great action comes, it's fueled from this beingness, you know, Jason, it, it comes from this very potent place of gathering our energy, blanking the mind, the overthinking mind, going into this deeper experience of beingness. And then there's so much more power behind our words. And when we do decide to take right action, it's fueled from something from a much deeper place. So you mentioned our desire to control you mentioned taking action and in the book, you talk about the concept of dynamic willpower. You know, I think yes. we all know what willpower means, but can you talk about dynamic willpower and why it's more powerful? Yeah. So this is something that this is a term that Paramahansa Yogananda coined and used himself. And so again, it goes back to tuning into something that's limited by definition versus infinite and unlimited. So when we're thinking about, when we typically think about willpower, we think, oh man, you know, we use the term in everyday life, like, oh, I don't have enough willpower to stop eating the cookies. You know, we kind of think it's this finite resource. And there's actually some research about this in the book where some scientists are saying, oh, it's actually more like joy or anger. It's not something that can actually be used up, but it's more of an energy that you can tune into and tap into. And how Yogananda was talking about it was igniting um, and really energizing your will from a couple of characteristics. And one of them I talk about this in the warrior chapter, which is one of my favorite chapters, which talks about anytime we're thinking about a goal or what we want to create, because we have free will, right? We can say, I want to manifest this one thing, but there's going to be way more power. We're going to be able to expand our limited will into this dynamic will when we include the good of others, when we think about how we can serve the whole, how does my part fit into 
everyone else, you know, the way of things, or we can say the will of God. So it's not that I'm just trying to create, you know, this one thing that's going to benefit me, but instead we expand it into thinking. We sit down, we meditate, and then we can think, oh, what's the highest and best use of my energy? Or what business can I create that's going to also help serve? How can I fit into the whole? So when we're doing that and we see that warriors rarely just battle for themselves, they're working for a higher cause, they're working for others, they're you know, wanting to protect or expand or whatever it is, a group of people. And so one of the ways that we ignite our will to work for us in the highest and best ways is we are sure to include in our goals the service of others so that when we sit to write something, you know, we know the, the, the great patience that comes with writing books or working out a business plan or whatever it is, because we're working for, again, this expansive quality beyond the limited self, more energy comes in. You know, it's like when I had to do something from one of my kids, I always feel, okay, I can anchor, I can dig in and get more energy to do this versus just me. So when we think about that in this more expansive way, Whenever we're putting our focus on, first of all, we think about the whole, we think about serving and benefiting others. And that's one of the attributes that really does help to make our goals, you know, just more successful in general because we're expanding them by nature. So that's one of the attributes. You know, you mentioned manifestation and I can't help but go to affirmations and, and very appropriate given Hay House is your publisher, you know, Louise Hay, the godmother of affirmations, you can heal your life, had a <laughs> prof profound impact on me. And here and there, when I'm going through something, I definitely go to that book and say, what's really going on here? And what's the affirmation I need to spend some time on? And so, you know, affirmations, you know, very new age concept. And yes, th there is, there's science out there as well. And I think a lot of people have different opinions on what works and what doesn't. And, you know, I'll just say this or do that. And I'll, I'll never forget. I read somewhere once where Jim Carrey was talking about manifestation and he was like, well, you can't just get, he's a big believer in that. Like he loves Eckhart Tolle. And, yes. And he had this quote was hilarious. He was like, you know, you can't just like manifest, you know, $10 million or something along those lines and then, right. and then go on your couch and eat a ham sandwich. You know, you have to do the work. And so in terms of affirmations, it's a cousin of manifestation, if you will, like you have a five-step process. So can you walk us through affirmations? And I, I think like, what do we get wrong about affirmations and walk us, <laughs> walk us through your process. It's not just like, oh, yes. I'm just going to affirm this. Like I'm rich, I'm beautiful, oh, I'm whatever. And let's... Yes. Thank you. I think affirmations have gotten a really bad rap, you know, from some, you know, let's just say like prior books and documentaries and things that just kind of, I think, oversimplify it. So if we're just rattling off a bunch of words, then of course, it's like we're lying to ourselves if we don't really believe it or we're just, you know, saying things. So funnily enough, the, the example, someone wrote this part of the, contributed a story for that chapter in the book was Dan Buettner who's a friend of both of us. And he talked about when he set the Guinness Book of World Records for bicycling Africa. And it started with this declaration that he was very enthusiastic about. And it was like his kind of affirmation, like, I'm going to bicycle Africa. And he started saying it out loud. And what happened is he started enlisting other people. His enthusiasm actually started attracting sponsors and friends to come. And then he started feeling, oh my gosh, this isn't just about me. There's all these people counting on me. And so it fueled more and more of the actions that came 
from the affirmation. So it's a real world example of, you know, speaking something and then it really aligns, which goes into this process, which is taught by Yogananda. And so it's a new age concept, but this, the teachings around affirmations and the power of the word and the spoken word and the written word have been around for thousands of years. And so what Yogananda says, first of all, is we never want to just, you know, speak an affirmation like in the middle of a, a Zoom call or when you're just kind of, you know, focusing on something else, because those are the times where you're lying to yourself. You want to be in a very centered place with equanimity and calmness. So ideally after you meditate. So let's say you sit to meditate. You're not resisting your thoughts, but you're letting them sort of settle down. And so you're in this focused place. And how he teaches affirmations is to um, frame them in the, in the, first of all, the I am form. So this is uniting the limited egoic consciousness with this divine, expansive, true self-consciousness. And how he teaches us is you speak the words out loud first. And then you start to say them softer and softer into a whisper. And then you eventually just start to say it silently. But it's this process, and he gives a lot more information about it, how you really want to use your dynamic will, your full concentration, which you develop through some other practices, into merging with each word you're saying. And so you go through it. And so you start to not feel it's, you know, when we meditate, eventually there's no separation between self, little s, and self, big S, and the divine. There's this, you know, samadhi, there's this union. The word yoga means union. And so when we're practicing these affirmations, it's really starting to create union with each word. And you really have to, and he says in the beginning, first of all, you're choosing an affirmation that will serve more. It's an expansive affirmation. And you have to believe in the possibility of the affirmation in the first place to an extent, maybe it's a reach. But if you're like, yeah, I'm going to be the king of Swaziland and you don't really believe it, it's just ridiculous to even try this process. So you want to have something that is in the scope. You want to start merging with the words and eventually you want to say it silently and internally. So you're really bringing that in. Now, again, right action. It doesn't mean like, oh, I'm affirming this house and it's going to get dropped down. But what it is, is it's going down into what Yogananda calls the super consciousness, really our deep belief system. So it starts to open us up to the possibility of this being created. And so then as we continue to tune in, your intuition will then guide you into, oh, maybe this person would be helpful or reach out to this or send this email. And so when I started doing affirmations, you know, my first way of really practicing this deeply was, you know, I'm going to make the New York Times bestseller list. And I would say it and then I would, you know, really go into it and I would get excited about it and then I would get enthusiastic and then I would think of, oh, okay, I'm going to like pitch this person. I'm going to put it out there. So I took action. <laughs> you know, it's the affirmation is bolstering that believing and that confidence, but then it becomes this extension of your hands and your, you know, your body you start taking action with that affirmation. So it's really a, more of a jumping off point. Well, talk about feeling. Why feeling is so important. You, you've talked that yes. the word feel, feeling has come up so much during our conversation. And so talk about how feeling is so critical as we think about affirmations and being mad, like feeling like we need, you need to feel it. Yeah. So it goes back to, you know, when I was saying Eckhart Tolle always says, go beyond thought. And thought are these formed constructs. And thought comes 
you know, a lot of our thoughts are, you know, from this egoic mind, the conscious part of us that can tell us thoughts that are true. And a lot of times tells us thoughts that are not true. You know, the voice of the critic, the voice of self-doubt, the constant overanalyzing. So when we're looking to create something, you know, bigger, something that maybe we don't have right now, we don't want to listen to the overcritical mind. We want to go into these feelings and the feelings. And again, with the body and the self-generating ability that we have, that the Heart Math Institute talks about a lot. These feelings are actual things. They're, they're frequencies. It's energy in motion. That's what energy emotions are. And so that starts to allow us to align to these words, to what we're affirming versus, well, I don't know how that could actually be created. You know, the, the overthinking ego doesn't have all the answers. We may not know the full path and that's okay. It's more about aligning to this. You know, when we're talking about abundance, these frequencies, this expansion, and it's from that place of pot potency. Oh, like I'm feeling positive. I'm feeling unlimited right now. I'm feeling courageous out of that space, out of that energy of courageousness. Maybe I will send this email that usually I'd be, you know, intimidated to send or go up to somebody, or maybe out of that space, we come up with this idea that helps us to fulfill that actual dream. It helps us to actually actualize it. So instead of the mind and these constructs, which again, are actually really limited, we want to go into this, you know, this formless place, which again, for the scientific mind, isn't as easy to pin down, but it's, you know, there was some studies that attempted to study intuition. Jason, I don't know if you got to that part, but it was, you know, these Nobel Prize laureates saying, you know, at this certain points, it almost felt like we were guided into which place and to go into our research. And we went into that. It wasn't something that was so, you know, d d demonstrable by actual, like, you know, here's the scientific process. There is this experience of feeling our gut energy and feeling our heart and feeling love. So these feelings are what we want to start to expand and harness and work with versus the limited thoughts. I love if that. that makes sense. No, it does. <laughs> it does. So I'm gonna, in closing, I'm going to bring it back to the subtitle of the book. So practical enlightenment for everyday life. What's one thing, one non-negotiable that every listener should do, can do other than obviously pick up the book to help bring them to a better place in terms of practical enlightenment in everyday life? What's one non-negotiable? Okay, so it's, I already said it, but I'm going to say it again, Jason, because it is my one non-negotiable, and I believe it is the highest and most important activity that we can do as humans, and this is to prioritize somewhere in your morning routine to sit in meditation. And again, it could be seven minutes, which are you know, some of the free meditations I put out every week are about that long. I say you can sit longer, but... If we're out here all the all the time, there is no real way, I believe, Jason, to really connect to everything that we want, to the true self, to this expansive part of us, to the abundance, to the magnetism, to the confidence, to the love, the real um, peace inside of us. And so we need to really value this inner time and understand that we transform our lives from the inside out as much as the media and everything out there wants to tell us to focus out here and strategize and do all this. And that's important too. But at the same time, we want to nourish this inner energy. And we see that when we change our frequency, everything in our life externally starts to change. So I'll say that transformation from the inside out starts with a consistent meditation practice morning, ideally evening, but definitely in the morning. 
Amen. Kimberly, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jason. Such a pleasure to be with you.